Well, good morning. morning. How are we doing today? Great. I got several grades. I got one in the nine o'clock, so I'm super stoked that you guys are doing better than they were. Um, I got to warn you guys, uh, nine is a whiplash chapter again, where it feels like Solomon is unable to make up his mind about what he thinks about the world. So uh, I want to prepare you guys for that as we jump into it. But more than that, I want to give you guys uh, sort of a new frame, a new category to kind of look at things through. And that is because the beginning of this chapter, the first six verses, talks a lot about death. It talks a lot about how everyone here is going to die. It doesn't matter if they are righteous or unrighteous, if they are ceremonially clean or not. Um, it is coming for everybody sooner or later. And uh, turns out there is a 100% mortality rate among human beings. So no one is getting out of here alive. But um, Solomon is trying to give us a category to think in. And I think that this passage is, yes, about death, but more so the life that we're supposed to live in light of death rather than death itself. So as we are going through that, I want us to be mindful of that. And I would love it if you guys would join me in prayer, uh, first off, for uh, the church and the time that we have together for the Bicel family, um, but also for everything that's going on in Ukraine and abroad, uh, just to lift up the church internationally. So if you would join me in prayer and then stand for the corporate reading of God's word, we'll... uh, get into this together. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this morning, for a church uh, full of friends and loved ones um, that is willing to uh, just bond together in hard times. God, I pray that you would be in and among us as we dive into your word this morning. I pray specifically uh, for the Beisel family this week as they are uh, grieving the loss of Howard, Jen's father, and uh, Jess' father-in-law. Father, I pray you'd be with them and working powerfully uh, both in their lives through your spirit, but also in the community as they rally around them. And Father, I would also um, lift up the suffering that's happening um, abroad in Ukraine as that conflict is ongoing and things feel uncertain. God, I pray that you would give uh, Christians specifically in that context an opportunity to live life um, on fire and as a light for you, Lord, that you would be in and amongst that circumstance in a way that only you can. Father, I pray um, against the powers of this world because we believe that you have a greater power that you are sovereign over it, that you are good, and that you care for your children. So, Father, I pray that you would make that known in the world as we make it known here today at Maranatha. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And now, if you would all stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you're able, um, I am going to be going through the entire chapter, and if you need to sit down at some point, please feel free to do that. I don't want to make anyone too uncomfortable, um, but if you would join me as we begin in verse 1. Uh, The preacher writes, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know, and they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be white, let not oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. 
Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like a fish, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heeded, the words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, as I was saying, as we get into this, I really want to begin to restructure this category that we think of death as, because so often we can think of it as something that we are trying to avoid, that we're trying to prolong and stretch out, but I think that Solomon has made it abundantly clear, especially in the last part of chapter 8, which David preached on so well last week. Um, beginning in verse 6, he says, For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man has power over man to his hurt. And as we go through Ecclesiastes, I think we're beginning to see this really large... Um, I would call it an exegetical circle where we have this idea of vanity and pointlessness and toil and difficulty interspersed with these bright moments of pleasure and joy and a hope that comes from possibly somewhere that is not under the sun. But then as we begin to see that and look to that, Solomon reminds us that that joy and that hope that we have here on earth is not all the hope that we have because if that is what we hope in, then that too is vanity and striving after the wind. So as we begin to rethink of death as this category, not of defeat, but instead of a boundary that gives life and purpose and a hope to be more to our lives. Because what we find here in Ecclesiastes is not that death is this enemy that we are striving to defeat, but this time that is going to come for us all. Indeed, it's an enemy that's too great for us. And we find in this passage that Solomon is in many ways embracing the finitude of the human existence. He's embracing the fact that we are temporary, that we can't do everything, that we have a limit on how long we have and what we can do in that time, and that everyone is going to die regardless of moral standing or competence, and that it is God who has the authority to determine when someone will die. And one thing to really address quickly is this idea in verse 2, it says that it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is the one who shuns an oath. An oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun. And what I want to categorize here is that since we understand that death is in the hand of God and that Solomon is calling death evil, should we then associate death and evil with the character of God? Should we begin to understand that God is this cruel, capricious tyrant that is inflicting death on a people that don't deserve it? And I would say no, we should not do that because the evil that we find here is not what's contained in the hearts of God, but in the heart and the spirit of mankind. That we are set an intent to strive after the wind, that there is madness in our hearts while we live 
and full of evil. This is affirmed in Genesis where Adam and Eve had an opportunity to live life under the sovereignty of God, to live according to his rule, but instead chose their own agenda, but instead chose to try and make the finite infinite, to make the temporary eternal, and to bring into their lives the authority that was not theirs to grasp at. So when God makes mankind eternal, but then sin enters in, it is not an evil, but a mercy that we would not need to abide in sin longer than we have to that we have an opportunity to live here on earth and to do the good work that is given to us because we see here from the first six verses that it is better to be alive and to work and to find meaning in what we're doing while we're here under the sun than to perish at all. And I think we need to find out that man is limited. We're limited by time that we can't fit everyone and everything into all of our social circles. We can't make space for everything that we wish that we could do. And we're also limited by ability because we don't have all the time in the world. We can't develop all the skills in the world. We can't have all the PhDs and MDivs. We can't do everything that we want to do from a standpoint of acquiring more power to reign over the world. So we're limited by time. We're limited by ability. And we're limited by the fact that we just don't know what is best most of the time. It's a reality that we need to grapple with. And I think that even if we had all the time and all the power and all the wealth and all the ability to affect change in the world, we would still be paralyzed by it. And I think this idea of ourselves being limited, that we are not able to drive forward completely autonomously the narrative of our lives, is pretty diagnosable in the American character. I think we all have a pretty bad case of main characteritis, where we will watch a movie or a film and all of a sudden insert ourselves into the role of the main character that everything is turning on. And recently I've been on this sort of really grand quest with uh, Hannah and Kevin McCarthy and Ellen Vale to watch through all of the Marvel movies, and we finally got to sort of the pinnacle of like the third or fourth phase of the series where we're watching through Infinity War and Endgame, and we had this like lunch break or dinner break in between because we had like five hours of movie to watch yesterday. And as we're driving on the way to the restaurant, we're sort of talking amongst ourselves like, what superhero do you think you would be if you were in the Marvel Universe? And I thought, well, like I'm not really quite like big and strong enough to be Hulk, but like maybe I could pull off Thor and... Uh, I was quickly told that that's not quite the case either. So like maybe at best I'm hoping for like a really fit Tony Stark and just like really smart and really apt and able. Um, and I think that's part of that main characteritis that we all have. That when we're thinking about the characters that we inhibit in the, Mar in the Marvel Universe, it's not so much that we really should see ourselves as Iron Man or Thor or even Hawkeye who's like, you know, like not the greatest, but like he's there. It, he's got a bow and arrow, it's cool. Um, but instead we're kind of just like, you know, like, New York Citizen 504, like we're really not necessarily the main character in the story that God is telling. And if we interpret it that way, I think we're going to lay some expectations on ourselves that ignores these facts that we're going to die, that we are limited, and we can miss the idea of what are we supposed to do with this. We can miss the idea that God has created us here for a purpose, and that purpose is a good thing. And while we may not be able to do everything, we can do something, even Hawkeye can do something, but because we're temporary and everyone else is temporary, we shouldn't be working for this permanent thing here on earth. We shouldn't be working for this permanent idea of I'm going to be memorialized and have a monument and I'm going to be a whole chapter in a textbook. What we should be working for, though, is explored by Solomon in the rest of the chapter. And we see that sovereignty is in the hand of God, but delight is available to mankind. Because as we go through and we look at the later part of the first six verses, it talks about how it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. Now, let me just take a quick survey. Who here is a dog person? All right, and then who here is a cat person? 
Okay, I'm praying for y'all. But for those of us who are dog people and really love our dogs and they're great pets, what we need to understand is that they were more of like a nuisance or a vermin in the time of Solomon's writing than they really were uh, pets and compatriots, man, best friend. Like they were really just like scavengers almost. But the lion, on the other hand, is this really noble kind of signal of who is like the Davidic family and kingdom. It was a sign of the kingdom. It was this really noble creature. But Solomon is saying like, hey, like, look, you might want to think for all the world that you're a lion, but it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion because at least then you can do things. At least then you can participate in the things that I'm going to lay out for you here. And what does Solomon lay out? Well, pretty simply, he lays out that it is a good thing to go on and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. He says, let your garments always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. And like there's that whiplash thing, right, where you have like this really good, hopeful, happy thing, and then all of a sudden like, yeah, live your vain life, whatever, it's fine, you're going to die anyways. And I don't think that's the point that Solomon's getting at. I don't think the point that we're getting at here is that it's all pointless or that it's all vanity because it doesn't last forever. Because when you read through Ecclesiastes, this idea of vanity, this idea of chevel in the Hebrew is not so much always translated the exact same way. It's not always vanity, but a lot of times it's this idea of it's fleeting. It's a breath. It's a soap bubble that's ready to pop. And I think as we all take a deep breath in and out, as we inhale and exhale, what can you do in the space of that? What can you do in the space of a breath that can really last for eternity? And I think the answer that we would all come to is nothing of note. But what we are put to do here in this brief instance that we have, Solomon gives us permission and says that God has already approved that we celebrate, that we eat good food, that we find a reason to celebrate, and that we do it with the people that we love while we do the work that we care about as best we can. Because God really did create us to enjoy these things. God created good food because not only is it necessary, but it's enjoyable. And even in Jesus' ministry, so much of it is centered around the meals that he shared with people. The Last Supper in the end of John is sort of this amazing upper room discourse that we get, and it forms a huge piece of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, and it happens around a dinner table. He gives us a reason to celebrate, and what I want to focus on for a minute, because it can seem a little different here to us in verse 8, is when it talks about how he wants our garments to always be white and let not oil be lacking from our heads. That's all celebration language. That's all this idea of your white linen sort of tunic or getup was this really nice going out piece of attire. It's your three-piece suit. It's your tuxedo. It's what you wear like to prom and a nice dinner with the wife on an anniversary. That is how you sort of show that like, hey, like we're showing up to have a good time and we're prepared for it. We're setting time aside for it. We're excited to be into it. And Solomon here is, like he commended joy, he's commending celebration. He's commending an opportunity to look at the chance that we have to be joyous here in this life, even though it's temporary. Even though we live in this category of death, it is not impossible for us to find this delight that's available to us. He also tells us that we should work with all of our might for whatever we find to do, because there is no thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. And that applies to everyone who is a teacher or a student. That applies to people who are working out in the field, in farms, who are working in the trades, who are working in government agencies or law firms. There is a breadth here that we find in the grace of God to bless the ministry that we have in our lives, knowing that in the hope of working as Christians, it is always gospel forward. It is always something where we have this hope that we are willing to share with those who are around us, that are coworkers, that are maybe our peers or our students or our people who are reporting to us, 
But what I want to also emphasize is that it is possible to make an idol out of things that are meant to be good things. Because the problem that humanity tends to have with these good things that God has given us is we take good things and we make them ultimate things. We make them the things that instead of being nice to have, instead of being portions for a time while we're here on earth, we make them the entire point and we turn good things into idols. Because it is possible to be a glutton. It's possible to be an alcoholic or a people pleaser or a workaholic. And an outright refusal to, invo- to, to enjoy these things isn't necessarily the right thing either. It's not a great thing to sit up on your high and holy mountain by yourself subsisting on saltine crackers and water when there is joy that exists to be had here while we can have it. And this is not hedonism. This is not some vain enjoyment of things that we have because we're eating and drinking and we should do that because tomorrow we die. This is not hedonism by another name. This is an opportunity for us to see the good things that God has given us and to worship the creator through the created things, not worshiping the created things instead of the creator. So as we continue to work through this, I want us to understand that while we can tend to find joy in that full feeling that we get from a good meal, or we can tend to chase a buzz more than the community that finds us in, or we can tend to so desperately want the people that are around us to approve of us and to think we're competent and congenial, to think we're friendly and fun, that can't be the whole point. We can't turn good things into ultimate things. Because our comfort shouldn't come from food. It should come from the present Savior that we have in Christ. And our relaxation and our ability to take life one step at a time should come from the idea that everything is already secure in what Christ has done, not from whatever substance that we are finding in our cups at the time. And we can't try to numb our pain or avoid our hurts in the hope that they're just going to go away. We can't do that in the hopes that they won't be back for us when we get back out from a night at the bar or a night at dinner, because those problems are endemic to the human situation. They're going to remain in a way that can feel difficult and challenging, but God has given this to us in a way to celebrate, in a way to make merry in the time that we have. So then, what is our priority with these things? To delight in them as God would have it, and then also to see our calling in it. And for those of you who aren't maybe super familiar with Christian circles or Christian uh, vocabulary, we call it Christianese, Um, this term of calling is this idea of what has God put you on this earth to do? And I think there can be a lot of anxiety, especially with younger people or people who are kind of reinventing themselves after they've found out who Jesus is and what that means for your life. You can be really nervous to think, oh man, like, am I going to be dating the right person? Or am I going to be marrying the right person? Or am I going to be finding the right job? Am I choosing the right major? Am I buying a right house in the right area? Am I taking the right job? When really God's grace is enough to encompass all of that. Because the requirement of the gospel for the Christian is that, they be fully, is that they be fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, to the glory of the name of God. And then outside of that, there's a much wider bar, although it is high, that we can know that we are living out into the grace of God that he's given us for the work that we find to do. Because God does not qualify it in saying, oh, I hope that you really work hard with whatever you find to do, but only in these one or two certain areas that feel very holy and ministry-like, but instead he's given us all things to do for his glory. And I think that we find this echoed throughout the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament, and especially when Paul is writing to the believers in Corinth in his letter for the Corinthians, the first one, uh, in chapter 10, verse 31, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And what he's talking about here specifically is food that is offered to pagan idols at temples and if Christians should be allowed to eat of that. So should things that are offered to pagan foreign gods be part of the Christian lifestyle? And the idea that Paul is suggesting here is that for some people, it's not a great thing. And if you have a problem with 
any of the things that Solomon mentioned earlier, if you have a problem with um, just deciding to be a workaholic or a people pleaser or if substances can present an issue for you, then I think there's a level of Christian discernment that we should have. But there is this other overwhelming idea that God has given us good things to enjoy and it is ours to do with that because we can do it to the glory of God. We can do it in a way that honors him even though it might be difficult to find that discerning line and it's up to the church to find what that way to gather around those difficult situations are. But what we don't find is that there's no context in Scripture for a Christian that believes that a good God has put us here for a sovereign purpose but phones it in halfway through the workday. So whatever we do as we go through what this work and what this hope that we have here on earth is, is that we do it to the glory of God and that we don't shirk him what is owed to him. And then it all feels like it's chugging along pretty well. It's this really happy-go-lucky kind of paragraph. And then Solomon just hits us like a truck and says, And I saw again under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. So he's saying like, hey, just because you're strong, you're not going to win. And just because you're wise, you're not secure. Just because you're smart, you're not going to be rich necessarily. And just because you're well-educated, it doesn't mean that you're going to have all the right breaks. So then what is the purpose of any of this? And how do we reconcile this idea that Solomon talks about when he says that we are subject to time and chance? Because we've been preaching really heavy on the last couple of weeks on this idea of the sovereignty of God, on the idea that he is in control over your good days and over your bad days, over the best of times and the worst of times. But what we need to understand is that while it may appear as chance to the fish that is swimming through the sea or the bird that is flying through the sky, that snare or that net is not something that is a surprise to the hunter, to the one who is orchestrating what is happening in those contexts. So while we are in it, while we are struggling through life, through the vanity of what this can feel like, and we see things that don't make sense, or we see things that don't feel fair, what we need to be mindful of is that it doesn't make sense because we aren't the one who's making the decisions, who has the ability and the sovereignty to hold death in his hands and decide that this is the course that humanity has the privilege of undertaking. As we trust in our sovereign God, we can endure through what chance looks like here on earth. And we're called to recognize that hand of God in the things that we do, in the idea that wisdom is worth it for wisdom's sake. Because if we aren't going to be rewarded for it, if bread doesn't go to the wise, then why should we follow it out? Because wisdom on its own is its own reward. Because things don't need to make sense to us here on earth because we can trust in a heavenly Father that has orchestrated all things for our good and for his glory. And we can chase things that feel more than material. We don't necessarily chase things like food and comfort, like money and victory here on earth and whatever conflict that we're dealing with. But we can chase these really high-minded ideals. We can chase this idea of, oh, if I don't accomplish a whole lot, at least I can leave a legacy. At least I will be memorialized or have a whole chapter in a textbook. And I'm really tempted to always think of Hamilton when this idea of legacy comes up because there's this really fantastic piece where... Hamilton talks about legacy. What is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden that you never get to see. And that would make so much sense. That would be the right answer if it wasn't for the last few verses here in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon writes and he says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, 
though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So we find here this brave man from a small town. He is poor. He doesn't have much to his name. And by his wisdom, he manages to triumph over this king that has, for what feels like all the power in the world, all the infrastructure and all the military might. And at the end of the day, after delivering the city from what feels like impossible odds, he is not remembered. He doesn't get a statue. He doesn't get a tombstone. He doesn't get a footnote in a history book. But yet Solomon still says that there was an example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to him. And this idea of we can chase recognition, we can chase this hope for remembrance and immortality, but the only immortality that comes is what comes through Jesus Christ. You can't manufacture it, you can't fake it, you can't build it up through your own works or deeds or hope of being a better person. That the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. That wisdom in itself is its own reward. And if not only that, wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So the idea continues again that wisdom, if nothing else, does no harm. If wisdom, even if it is not valuable in and of itself, which it is, it at least does no harm. And I think that as we walk through this, I think we need to find our ways to celebrate in our limitation. We need to find ways to celebrate in our finitude and in the fact that we can't do it all, and indeed we were never built to do it all. If we somehow miraculously managed to add another day on to get everything done that we needed to do, so we had eight days instead of seven, we would still find nine days worth of work to do. And as we rest in this limitation, I hope that we find ways to practice that. I hope that we find ways to understand that it is okay to let go of something to give it to God to hope that he'll do it. So I hope that this week, as you're thinking about this, as we're walking through Lent, which is this fantastic liturgical season that leads up to Easter, where the church walks with Jesus into the wilderness to find that our power by and of itself is not sufficient. I hope that as we do this, as we find that our power truly is made perfect in weakness and that it comes from Christ who has that power, that we would take time to pray, that we would take time to rest from our industry and spend time seeking the Lord in prayer. And I pray that we would spend time fasting, that we would understand that it is not from our ability to feed ourselves or do it by our own strength, but even when we are weak, God is powerful to work in our circumstances. I would call us into a radical dependency on him whose life is not fleeting, whose ability to work is not something that could ever be forgotten. Because the wonderful thing about Christianity is that it affirms, like no other world religion, the value and place and purpose of creation. That we are not just trying to get away from the world, from the physical, but indeed God entered down into it in the person of Jesus Christ. Because for all the way that we try and spin it, for all the ways that we try and read through all of these fantastic theological, theological documents, we do believe in a way in work salvation. Romans 2 talks about how God is going to give each person their rewards for those who do good everlasting life. So we do believe in a work salvation, but it's just not our works. We believe that Jesus has done things that we are unable to do in ourselves, and we trust him for our righteousness, for our reconciliation. So as we walk through what we find in vanity, I hope that we also find joy there. I hope that we also find joy in the same places that Jesus does, and that we can rest in a sacrifice that was not ours to make because we couldn't do it, because we were limited by time, by ability, by our perfection, by our righteousness, by the fact that we are sometimes filled with evil and madness. 
So as we walk through this cycle in Ecclesiastes, I hope that we find together that this is not the end goal to try and escape, to find a way to get out of death, but instead to find meaning in the meaninglessness and to pursue God erstwhile in the meantime. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church and these people. I pray that as we continue to seek what your righteousness, what your goodness, and what your love looks like, that we live that out in a fresh, new way. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that you would bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.